Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? A verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. All rise. All rise. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. Well, 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 welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us for episode two. We're happy to be here. I see John's got a suit on today. That must mean a court hearing either just happened or is about to happen. Yeah, I got a little real legal work today. So, you know, got to got to dress up for my, my Zoom appearance. But uh, I'm also going out to University of Miami to judge the closing argument competition. So. Oh, right on. That'll be exciting. Well, I had to put on a college shirt to kind of match you. Couldn't be in a polo again. <laughs> So listen, we uh, we changed up the format a little bit in order to get some clarity to our listeners so they knew what we were going to cover. Today, we're going to basically cover running a law firm. And uh, at the beginning and the end, we'll have a little bit of different topics. We're going to start today with a little bit of a case law update. Kind of exciting because this particular update is a win from our firm, which is you know not something we can always tout. And then at the end, we're going to end with a question of the week. But uh, without further ado, let's kind of jump right in, John. Let's talk about this case. This is Shanika Everett. Um, it's an existing client, an existing case we have where there's kind of two components to her case. She's got the underlying lawsuit we filed and then this appeal that I want to talk about with everyone. Uh, for a little back backstory, our client was shot and injured in a parking lot outside of an adult entertainment club a couple of years back. And we filed a lawsuit for personal injury in the local state court. And the insurance company, AIX Specialty Insurance Company, who presumptively had a duty to defend and indemnify that claim, at some point filed an action for declaratory judgment in federal court. And it wound up in the middle district of Florida. And so we kind of had to put the underlying case on hold for a bit while we defended uh, interestingly, argued for coverage, basically, the coverage should stand in that case. And so what we decided to do was uh, tackle the argument presented by the insurance company head on in a way that I think I'm proud to speak for both of us that no one else, it seems, in the country had yet done. So there's a standard policy exclusion in a lot of these contracts for firearms. And it reads basically something to the effect of, if a person is injured by a firearm uh, or multiple firearms, uh, then it's not covered. So it had been invoked and we decided we were going to challenge it because in this particular context, the firearm exclusion read firearms, not firearm. And we made the technical argument that if someone shot by a single bullet, that necessarily means they're by a single firearm. And if the exclusion uh, the firearms exclusion only uses the plural form, not singular, then it doesn't apply. So uh, March 30th, we got the ruling, and I'm excited to announce that the panel, all three unanimously affirmed the middle district who had previously ruled in our favor. You can see here that our argument was that she was shot by a single projectile, and that's what we pled in the complaint below. And in the federal deck action, Those are, that's the record that the court rules on. So AIX tried to invoke this firearm exclusion, uh, claiming that, you know, there's no coverage for injury, death, claims, or actions occasioned directly or indirectly, or as an incident to the discharge of firearms, plural, by person or persons 
on or about the injured premises. And so what we did is, as I said, we, we showed the district court, hey, look, this insurance company knows how to use singular versus plural because they did it in the same clause. They did person or persons. But when they talked about firearms, they only used the plural, not the singular. And so as a result of that, it shouldn't apply to our case. And I'm happy to report that, you know, we below on the trial court level, both sides move for cross summary judgment. We won. Um, and on appeal, the panel affirmed. So that means for all intents and purposes at this point, there's going to be a duty to, to defend. Um, I think the duty to indemnify wasn't expressly ruled on, but I think it's closely related. So I don't expect anything different. And um, it's a big win for us because as we could tell when we argued it, there wasn't any pre-existing precedent on this particular technical argument. And well, um, well I think you're, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of underselling it. So Jordan's our, our linguistic ninja, right? Like he's the, you know, obviously before we have now the director of appellate practice, but he was the one handling all the appeals and, and what there's actually two opinions where this particular provision has been upheld. Right. And, and so when Jordan said, look, this argument wasn't presented in those cases. Right. And the he was kind of it was laughed at, you know, like, oh, yeah, good luck. That's never going to happen. We've already won this issue. You know, that we have other district court opinions. And it's exactly what the district court ruled on. It's like, look, you drafted this policy. You put the language in there. And obviously it's construed against them. And because Jordan said, look, in other contexts, they use person or persons. Here, they just said firearms. And we said well, she didn't get shot by or injured by firearms. It was just a single firearm. And the district court, uh, you know, I don't want to say bought it, but the district court uh, accepted that reasoning, that well-reasoned analysis. And, you know, he calls it a technical argument. I think it's a, it's a great argument of why that policy is invalid. So really, any specialty... AIX insurance policy where there's a, there it's a firearm exclusion. Look at the policy language, right? If your client was shot once by a single firearm and that's how you plead it, and they don't have firearm or firearms, there's going to be coverage, right? So, and even some of the cases where you may have thought there wasn't coverage. So that's kind of a um, you know in these negligent security contexts to to have to have something that's not excluded and to to make a claim now you know because. They were beating their chest since day one. We're out. We're going to be out. We're going to be out. And now they're not. And so that. Right. And I mean, what a difference for our client. I mean, the difference of a ruling can make going from, and she's seriously injured no matter what happened. She's been shot. I mean, it's a horrific experience, but whether or not there's coverage is kind of outcome determinative in terms of the likelihood of her recovery, especially against a defendant like this. And so I'm proud of the win. It was a collective effort. And uh, I don't mind being laughed at by, you know, people who disagree with my positions. If even if they're my friends on the other side, at the end of the day, if I believe in a position, I think we have uh, a legitimate chance to win. I'm going to argue it. And I'm, I'm proud that the federal courts agreed. I will say this, even though we're not giving legal advice and we're not starting attorney client relationships with anyone for the other practitioners out there, this, this policy exclusion, the firearms exclusion, I think it's an ISO standard. So it's likely to be, within some other policies, even if the insurer is not AIX. So, you know, look, what does this, what does this tell you? I think this is a specific example of a broader point, which is as a practitioner, don't take anything for granted. Don't just accept deck pages, get the full policy, read it closely. And especially where there's a coverage defense, you know, don't just concede it. Um, so without further ado, I just wanted to kind of address that. And I think 
let's switch gears a little bit, John. I mean, the, the topic today, as the title of the episode implies, is starting and running a law firm. It's something you and I have both done independent of one another, and it's now something we've had the pleasure of doing together for many years. So let me start with you. Uh, maybe give the listeners a little bit of an explanation of the background of when you started your original law firm and, and what was going through your mind back then. So it, I started my firm back in um, January 2013, which is about a year and a half after I graduated law school. Um, I was working doing federal maritime litigation. I was working for a solo practitioner. Um, and it got like really weird there at the end. And I, I along with like a couple of the people, we all got fired. You know, every, everybody was, was fired. We all were set to go. And, you know, it was, it was a very, so it was like a forced experience of saying, well, look, what do I do now? Right? Like, what do I do now? So I had, at the time, I had four files of my own. I had a laptop computer and that was it. Right? Um, you know, I didn't have, I didn't even have a printer to like print out my own stuff. So I had, I knew something was coming. So the individual that I was, you know, I was kind of fortunate because the person I was renting space from, I said, Hey, look, if I'm not working for this guy, can I rent this office? And he said, yes. And then he kind of came in and was like, well, what's going on? I was like, listen, I think I'm going to get canned. Um, you know, so he, he basically said, look, if you start your own firm, I want you to do some work for me. So I was able to do contract work for him doing like SEC securities type transactional work. And that allowed me to get some like money coming in, right? While I'm building a contingency fee practice. Cause that's kind of, you know, some of the fears that you have is like, well, what, how do I start making money immediately? Right. And obviously it's like, if you keep all your overhead low, I don't even think you need an office nowadays. Um, that gives you that ability to start that. So that kind of allowed me to, to, to build, you know, and, and, and you think about us, I had milestones, right? Like when I could buy a printer, when I bought a computer that actually wasn't a laptop with two monitors, right? You know, all of the, the my first employee, you know, I, I hired a legal assistant and, you know, she's still with me. Yeah, these are major milestones. Let's be right. real. When you're in the moment, in the trenches, so to speak, these, you know, we can talk about them in hindsight and, and gloss over them. But, you know, I know for you, because we've talked privately over the years, and I know for myself, when you reach those milestones, there's there's that you might not ever get there. And when you do, uh, it's a nice accomplishment. You know, if I, I'll say, I think, I don't know how you feel about it, but so you, mine was less out of necessity and more born of just a desire to try. Uh, I was at the Miami-Dade Public Defender's Office. It's a great office. I had an opportunity to help a ton of people, work with great people and try a lot of cases. But ultimately, I felt like the, the worth of a trial lawyer is in their ability to deliver results for their clients. And if I could step out and do it on my own or with the assistance of somebody similarly minded, we could make a difference. And I was getting married. I wanted to have children and, you know, the salary of an assistant pu public defender, especially back then I, got, I started on uh, probation of sorts and I didn't even get a full, full government salary. So we can talk about that another day, but it was, there was some financial incentive for me to try it on my own, but I'll confess, I mean, as confident as I was in my abilities in the courtroom, and I knew I had a lot to learn, there's also the fear of the unknown. I mean, I didn't know how to file the articles to get started with a company. I didn't know really what type of company to start. It had been a while since uh, I took business law in, in, in 2L year. And there's a whole lot of logistics that go into it. Uh, fortunately, back then, I had a, my then partner, uh, Danny, 
he was at the PD's office with me. He was similarly minded and he, he stepped out with me, but I think collectively we started with a couple thousand dollars, I think 10 K or less, which, you know, I'm not making light of it. It's something, but it's far from a war chest. And we started doing criminal defense. So if we didn't have clients coming in the door, there was no fees getting paid. Uh, we had that barrier to entry, you know, unlike a contingency fee case, anybody can hire you if you're willing to take it. You just got to wait to get paid. We were doing criminal. So <clears throat> if people weren't willing to pay us, our noobs out there trying uh, trying to get justice for them, we weren't getting paid. And, you know, life doesn't stop. Your obligations did you, don't did stop. Did you see that like as, as a, uh, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but did you see that as a benefit to, I mean, you kind of talk like, yes, them having the ability to pay you as the criminal defense side, but did you also see that as a benefit of like, you have money coming in immediately, right? Like Absolutely. Pay. Absolutely. And, you know, when you know that it's an eat what you kill environment, uh, in the beginning, you're much more willing to take uh, risks on cases that are a little bit more shaky, or maybe you just, you just take less money than you know you're worth. But you have to do these things. Pride really doesn't play into it at all. It's a survival thing in the beginning, uh, and you got to be hungry. And you know, it's not just all about the money. Sometimes the best way to make money is to do great work for someone, if not for free, darn near close to it. They tell someone else, and it kind of snowballs. So you've got to be committed to the long term, but you know, we started in a Regis building. And actually, the reason I bring that up is because that's ultimately choosing that office location, that shared space was a benefit for a lot of reasons, the cost and all that. But by choosing that office, it actually led me into your path, which allowed our paths to cross some years later, because I was going down the elevator one day. Now, mind you, I didn't do any plaintiff personal injury work, going down the elevator, and there's two people sharply dressed, they looked like lawyers, uh, and I said, you know, you guys lawyers, what's the deal? They, they said, oh, yeah, we're over in this building doing depositions. Well, one of them was Zach. Zach was a then associate at a plaintiff personal injury firm up the street in Brickell. We got to talking. We exchanged cards. We then went out to lunch. That led to a relationship where when I would, you know, the infrequent times when I would get a plaintiff personal injury case, I'd refer it to Zach. Sometimes I think Zach would then in turn refer it to you if it wasn't large enough for his firm. And then vice versa. We had never met, but I think you had some criminal leads that you were sending to Zach. He was a former prosecutor, or maybe asking for guidance where to send it. He would then send them to me. And so there was this kind of indirect relationship before you and I ever knew each other. Um, and then as fate would have it, uh, so we met at a, at a Christmas party, basically, for Zach's firm. We finally got a chance to meet and, and get to know each other. And that was a really momentous occasion for us, obviously. And we could talk about the rest of that. But that was a pretty cool experience, you know? Yeah, and here we are. It's kind of like... Um how things go down the the ladder of life, like up or down. And then, you know, we, we cross paths and started out, we kind of were, we still had maintained our separate space, right? We, we kind of did like a joint venture. We would have cases together. And then at some point, I mean, gosh, the creativity that Jordan has, um, and I guess coupled with the fact that I can be crazy at times was a really good mesh because we were, we think outside the box. We would try different things. I mean, we were looking at, I think one of our first things we looked at was doing like um, the fraud of credit cards at gas station pumps, right? We were right. going we to do that. And, and so we were, we were doing branding videos and, you know, trying to be creative of things that, you know, you can do on a relatively small budget, but can, can try to see, you know, what you can do. And I don't think anything actually came about that, but it was the idea that like, look, there's a lot of big voices in, the, in a particular space. And so you sometimes got to be creative. And, and 
to to kind of echo what Jordan says is establishing yourself as doing the work and being and and being creative and being strong and and you know does two things. One, it, I think it as a young lawyer, it's hard to get recognition of like this person is actually a real person and and serious and good at what they do. And you know that's difficult. You got to overcome those hurdles of like who are you right. kind of thing. And then also the clients, though, if you do right by them, your best case that you're always going to get is going to be the friend of somebody or the family member or someone they knew that said that you left them with a lasting impression that you you did right by them, you did your best job for them. And, and sometimes it, people think like, oh, it's the largest recovery. Sometimes it's not. It's just the fact that you got them something that you stood up, you fought for them, and then they go in and tell somebody and that's... You know, I think we've gotten uh, a couple of, you know, referral cases like that from existing clients that ended up, you know, being a larger case, but because of what we had done before, um, you know, so I think. Yeah. You know, I appreciate you patting me on the back. That's awfully nice of you. But, you know, to call yourself crazy, you're far more than that. Um, And and I mean, that in the most positive sense, you know, for me, I look back and I think there was a reason your your path crossed with mine and that we work so and still do but in the beginning the primary reason was we were we were different than each other we weren't doing the same things we weren't approaching problem solving the same way like as a very concrete example uh, i started with a partner but eventually for personal reasons you know he had someone he was in love with and they were getting married and she didn't live nearby so he relocated and i before i knew it i was a solo practitioner which wasn't by design but i dealt with it but what's interesting is when i did that I remember the fear of, I knew I needed help. I remember how big of a decision it was to make the financial commitment to hire a paralegal, legal assistant. Uh, up till that point, it was just Danny and I, we didn't have a legal assistant. Uh, that was a big deal. But I had like these artificial fears of growth, even though in my mind, I knew I wanted to grow. Uh, you know, you've got a wife, you've got kids or kids on the way and, and obligations. And it's just hard to look at the, the plate and say, I'm going to carve out some of this food for somebody else. Ultimately, that's something we could talk about that, that people should do. Conversely, though, when I met you, you had a staff, you had multiple employees, you were doing, there was a part of your practice that was pit, personal injury protection, you had a high volume of, of cases relative to what I was doing. And mind you, I was doing criminal, you were doing plaintiff personal injury, it's, it's apples and oranges in a way. But I looked at you and I said, man, this guy's got it down. He was able to overcome and conquer that fear uh, he had a, you know, I look at you as someone who has a healthy degree of a risk appetite. And I do too in my, you know, in, in many ways, but I just wasn't willing to you know, put my chips on the table, so to speak, the way you were. And you really gave me that confidence to do that. So even before we formally partnered, I looked at you and I said, if he can do it, I can do it. I, I hired someone and uh, she was wonderful. She worked with me for a long time. Um, and so kudos to you for, Maybe you can even tell our listeners, I mean, what was that like? You had multiple staff members. How did you get to that point? You know, it, it's an interesting ride to, to, to think about, like, you know, when you look back and, and realize that, like, wow, like I'm entering, it's 2022, I've been on my own for over nine years now. And, and it feels a long amount of time, but it feels shorter, right? It feels like, you know, and, and, and maybe because we're still grinding and still hustling, um, and I think I'll always continue to do that. But it was like, it's it's like a slow progression, right? And, and, and everyone feels like, and I don't know, maybe it's just me, like we, we, live, we live in a, in a world where we want results now, 
right? I want it now. I want it fast. I want to do all these things. And, and like when you're building a practice, and I think some of the benefits now of social media, like you can build a practice, you can build awareness, you can build a brand for rel- like yourself, right? I, I am I, my first website. I did it by myself on WordPress. I built it myself. You know, it wasn't just a five pager. Like I tried to build content. Um, you know, I started social media stuff and then, you know, I was able to go to networking where I met like medical providers and I met like other lawyers and, you know, just try to, I mean, cause initially I would take anything, anything that can't, you know, I was a door lawyer. I took anything that came in the door. I mean, you know, cases that were terrible, but I, I just, I wanted to work. I wanted to work and wanted to build. And, and so as I saw that like slow matriculation of things and, and I'll never forget, I remember, God, what was it? It was like one of my f- first cases I settled where it was like close to 50 grand. And I was like ecstatic, right? You know, I was like, a, you know, I'm getting a big fee. You know, I, I had been, my, my overhead was so low because it was 500 bucks to rent the office. And other than that, I didn't really have anything. So as I got, you know, started going on, I opened up, um, you know, I started getting in more cases. The, the, the PIP side was like kind of a small window of time, about six months where I did that, but that's not for me, not to say it's not for everyone else. But, you know, as I started getting more cases, I needed the help, right? I had Spanish clients. Um, I speak enough to talk about injuries, but not enough to actually do work. So I had to hire someone, an assistant that spoke Spanish. And what I did is I, I, you know, I had friends of like the first person I hired, relatively inexpensive, no experience, young, you know, and kind of said, this is what I like to see. This is what I like to do. And we kind of grew together. Right. And I mean, to the point that it was almost like, shout out to Rachel, by the way, she's still here. Yeah, She's, she's still, still with here. us. Yeah. Rachel, Rachel made it happen, but you know what I mean? It's like, and so it just kind of slowly grew. And then, you know, as it grew, cause I was the only lawyer, I was extended on cases, I was ext- like overextended, I would say, right? I couldn't be, because back then we didn't have Zoom. So I had to go to court. Right. I had to go and drive if I was in, you know, sometimes I'm in a, a county court case down in South Dade, um, you know, then I'm back up in Broward. I got to be in circuit court. And so like a lot of that took time and then in-person depots. And so I think now technological advances have made the practice of law easier. I think you can be more efficient. You know, I didn't have case management software. You know, I didn't have any of those kind of things and, and just kind of yeah. sweat of the brow run. And then I, I met Jordan, who was kind of doing the same thing. I mean, obviously, I mean, I had, I think when we got together, I had what, like six staff, just me and yep. six staff. And they were just assistants, right? And I didn't, I don't, I didn't have a paralegal. I had, had assistants. We worked together and like kind of, um, you know, to, to try to just be better and help me. I mean, as much as they could. Yeah. And I think the lesson learned from that for both of us, even though we came to it through different paths, it's the same conclusion, which is don't let fear, you know, stop you from doing what you believe in your heart. You can do try it. The worst thing that happens is you fail. And that's really not that big of a deal. You can always pick yourself up and dust yourself off and keep going. And the other thing is don't be scared of growth, whatever that means to you. But I mean, be true to yourself at some point at the end of the day, you're just one human being. And in order for you to even be the best version of you as a professional, you're likely going to need some help. Invest in yourself, you know, invest in other people and don't let a lack of experience from the people you're potentially going to hire stop you because if they're the right person who's going to listen, get on the same page, be open and amenable to training, before you know it, you're, you're training your new right hand. And whether they had experience before you soon forget, all that matters is you're in lockstep moving forward. 
Yeah, and, and I think I think the fear is the one thing that drives a lot of the, the things we don't do, right? The the fear of what's going to happen, how I make it, the fear, you know. And I saw this. It was like a Mike Tyson, who I love now as as an individual, was giving was talking about it, and he said he's like, I love fear. He's like, fear is what makes me be the better person. Fear is what drives me to be my best self. You know, that fear of failure, he called it an illusion. And it's kind of true that you can be, it's okay to be fearful. I was fearful. I mean, I, I when I, I didn't know, like, am I going to start a firm? Am I not? I, I didn't, I had, um, I think I was, was I married at the time? No, I was, I think I was engaged. I was not married yet. I actually went and interviewed with a defense firm had a great interview because I'm actually licensed in the Virgin Islands as well. And they had a practice there, you know, and I, if they had offered me what I thought was a fair, they offered me like a, a BS contract position. And I was like, no, thanks. Made my decision for me. And then they called and tried to offer me 20 grand more. And I was like, it's too late. Like first impressions matter. I had a great interview and then you didn't value what I had, what I knew I had. And, you know, she, my wife was like, look, or my now wife told me, she was fearful, not of the sense of like what we were going to do, but like she wanted me to say, look, go work somewhere first, like build your name because you're so fresh out of law school, right? It's been 18 months. You like, what do you even, and I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't know I'd been doing maritime litigation in federal court. I didn't know how I would call them land-based torts. I didn't know. Right. And so, you know, just like kind of like when you came over, like you didn't really know civil that much. You were doing criminal. And it's like the fears that we have, it's okay to be fearful, but it's not okay to allow it to cripple you to, to, to not take a chance. Because if you don't, then you get five years down the road, you're going to good job. They're paying you a bunch of money. And they, I call it the golden handcuffs. Right. Do I leave now? It's more risk. You may have kids. You, there may be all this other obligation. So for me, I told my, I was like, it's now or never, like, let's just do it. And if, yep. you know, I, I didn't have a backup plan. And I think sometimes maybe a backup plan doesn't make you look and work as hard, but what myself and you included, we have been grinding and driving and, and doing it since, since then, since then. Yes. Yeah, stay looking forward. You know, you can glance in the rear view, but don't get, don't live in it. The first person I ever worked for in law school, I volunteered my time with, who I consider a mentor to this day, used to say fear is a false expectation appearing real. I don't know if it's an original thought he had or it's something he shared with me, but it's always resonated with me. Just appreciate that, you know, more often than not, the fear is in your head. It's not real. And like I said earlier, the worst thing that happens is you fail. I do want to say before we switch topics, and but it, still talking about starting a firm. Look, if, if you're out there and, and you're working, maybe you're a law student looking forward to graduation, or maybe you're an existing practitioner who's been in private practice as an associate somewhere or even a partner for many years, and you're thinking about going off on your own, regardless of where you're coming from now, let me just say this, it, it doesn't require an enormous de degree of money to get started, but it's easy to convince yourself of that. There's all these marketing gimmicks and who's going to do the website and where's my office going to be and you know, who's going to pay for the furniture, who's going to pay for all this equipment. And before you get ahead of yourself, just break things down to what is required. And you'll find that at the end of the day, it's not an awful lot. And look, if you're in a position where you get to start with a, with a large war chest financially, hey, more power to you. Nobody says it's bad to have a cushion to fall back on because in the beginning, especially, it ebbs and it flows. Sometimes it's great and sometimes it's slow. Uh, but I do want to talk about having other support, non-financial support. 
for me, what I found really interesting is when I decided to go out from the outset, I found I was getting more negative energy or points of resistance from other people, other lawyers. Uh, some were my mentors at the time. Others were people I just reached out to, to talk to. And, you know, I talked to many different people, so it's not like one voice. But I think the general consensus was some people seemed almost um, – like, hey, don't come into my territory kind of thing. Do something else. Like I used to get the old, oh, criminals, you know, everyone who's a criminal defense attorney is withering away on the vine. There's no money to be made. Do something else. And I thought that was kind of a, if they really meant it, it was a mentality of fear, which I didn't appreciate. But if they meant it to kind of deter me, I didn't think that was right. And alternatively, I had people who were just like, oh, find a nice firm. You know, you can be the best lawyer you can be. You don't have to worry about things. You got benefits, whatever. <clears throat> you know who I got the most support from? The people that love me. And I think if you're out there and you're fortunate enough to have friends or family that genuinely care about you, those are the people you should ask because those are the people that know you best. My now wife, you know, Jill, she was, she had my back every step of the way. I mean, she always has, and I love her to death for that because without her like nudging and constant support, even just emotionally and mentally, I would never be here. So shout out to her because she's what made it possible for me you know, she was the one that would see me, you know, super stressed some days for a host of different reasons. Something went wrong in a case or a client I thought was going to pay us didn't, especially in the criminal days. Just because they sign on the dotted line and create an expectation of future payment doesn't mean that they'll come through. Um, and then my father, you know, who, you know, God bless him. I think, you know, he's, he just turned 70. I think he's still grinding seven days a week. And so I get a good work ethic from him. But I also got an appreciation and support from him to say, if you can ever be in a position to not have to be, uh, to be your own boss, rather, you should do that. And if you fail, you can always go back to being an employee, but you should try. And I really had his support and I love him for that because just from those two people giving me that degree of confidence, I took what I already had in terms of confidence. And I said, I'm going to make the leap. All right, I think this is a good time. We could switch gears and talk about running a firm since you and I have been doing that now together for many years. Uh, and I'd like to kind of kick it off by talking a little bit about the different hats you have to wear. You know, when you're running the firm and not just working in it, being a lawyer is one of the hats you wear, but it's not all you do, right? There's an administrative side, there's a rainmaking side, how are we gonna get, get business and bring it in? There's a branding and marketing component. I mean, part of what we're doing here, frankly, right? And so there's like all these different hats you have to wear and you gotta be comfortable doing them. And there's varying degrees of comfort for everyone, but maybe you can talk about all the different hats you wear in our firm currently and how that suits you. Yeah. I mean, as with, with anything, there's growth and, and one of my issues that I have is it's hard for me to let go of control, right? I do it in trial. It's, it's no different than running the firm. So for instance, you know, once we were able to hire, we hired a bookkeeper to have someone running money in-house, but I still have my finger on that at all times, right? I'm the one working in the, the accounting. I'm the one working in, I mean, shoot, I'm, I'm still running payroll just because I, I want to have that ability to have that control. Um, you know, so I, I kind of do like, you know, I think for myself and for Jordan, I, I do a lot of the financial side of the, of the firm as well as trying to um, do the practice. He does more of like the employee, you know, meeting with them, their, you know, reporting, um, quarterly meetings, things like that, you know, hiring, firing like that. That That's Jordan, right? He's, he can fire people no problem. Uh, you know, I, when I first started, one of the, the first person I had to let go was a very hard experience for me. You know, I tried to, so 
looking at it, running a firm, being like, okay, what boss do I want to be like? Who do I want to be? That's where I kind of first started. And, and I think, you know, I've learned a lot from Jordan um, how to be that good person. And really, it's just try to be the bosses that I didn't like, right? So I, we try to have a foster a very good environment. So I'd say I, I mean, I'm running finances. I'm doing a little bit of the HR side and then, you know, trying to branding, marketing, things like that. And then really still trying to just, teach when I can develop the lawyers, you know, when I to the best I can, and then really just, you know, getting in there working and trying cases. I mean, so it's a, it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot because, you know, myself and, and Jordan included, we're still like involved. I'm still working like a lot as, as a lawyer. And so sometimes when you're running a firm, you have to put that to the side and kind of be a, not a non-lawyer, but what do I need to get done? What are, what are I looking in for? Like, am I budgeting? Am I doing the, you know, the accounting side? Am I what, like those tasks take time and it takes you away from the, 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 the legal practice. Right. So, oh yeah, big time. Yeah. And, and, and you, you, you see that as well, Jordan. I mean, you, you know how it is. Yeah. I mean, I was once told you could be the greatest lawyer on earth, but if you don't have clients speaking a lawyer for, and that's a truth. I mean, it's an oversimplification, but it's a truth. So you got to bring in business and there's so many different ways to do that. Um, in my earliest stages, you know, even before we partnered and then after for a little bit, you know, I did some of the more traditional, Hey, if everyone else is doing it, it must work and you know, go to networking events or go to CLEs and try and mingle. You know, that's just, it's not the most natural thing for me. I didn't feel authentic doing that. I'm more of a one-on-one type of person. And fortunately we found ways to do that. And then there's more just, you know, traditional marketing, approaches we've done everything collectively uh you know through the online space whether it's organic seo you know paying a company to do that or paid advertisements or paying per lead i mean there's a myriad of different things you could do but you touched on two things just now that i really want to drill deeper on one is firing people because it's a necessary part of owning a business at times it's just the reality it's not something we've done frequently but at times you have to do it and it's a totally different thing than hiring uh, and then the other part is the grind, because I, I want people to get a, a fair understanding of what it takes, at least in our experience, you know, we're just doing the best we can at our level of awareness, but at least what it takes on our end. So let's What's start with firing people. Well, for I was going to say, what, what it, you made me think of the Tony Robbins. I feel like he's got some slogan, like, it's not the employee you like fail to hire. It's the employee that you fail to fire or something like that. Like I've, I, I, I've seen us talk, or I don't know if he did that, when it talks about employee production, efficiency in the work, right? It's not about, you know, it's important to find the right person to work for you and do well, but holding on to those employees for too long, they got to go. You know, I, I just, that jumps out in my mind of something that, that he talks about, right? Yeah, I think, look, most people, lawyers or not, in their life have applied for some job and been told no in varying degrees of politeness, I'm sure. I mean, maybe there's some outliers who they've gotten every job they've ever applied for and, you know, pat on the back to them. But real, realistically, that's not how most people's life goes. But when you're when you're looking to hire someone, you want to be respectful of the candidate you're going to decline. But it's a lot easier for some reason, at least for me, to politely you know, decline someone's ability to work than it is to have someone who you've invested tons of time training, tons of you know money in terms of payroll, and more than that, uh, they've built themselves into your network. They're now a cog in our collective wheel. They're a team member. My like, gosh, am I going to have to let this person go and start from ground zero? You know, that's a that's a fear. 
component. But to your point, sometimes it's necessary. And that could be for a thousand reasons. Fortunately, you and I have never had some like catastrophic thing happen where we found out an employee was doing X, Y, or Z that was like totally improper. And we had to, you know, drop the hammer fast. It's been a careful deliberation each time. But, you know, one thing that you have to, can't forget rather, is that these are human beings we're dealing with. And many of, you know, to the extent that someone has been working with you for months or years, there's a relationship there. Uh, and then they have people they're responsible for it. This is their livelihood. So that's a very delicate balance. It's not as simple as just saying, rip the bandaid off and move on. I mean, we care more about our people. We invest more in our people. So that's never an easy thing. But I, I feel good about, unfortunately, you know, the people that have come and gone. I do feel good about how it's it's gone overall because, um, it feels like when that time comes, we've given everyone the benefit of the doubt, or maybe we started to grow in a different direction and the feeling becomes more mutual. And I feel good about that. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the grind because, you know, we're sitting here, we're talking about starting a firm and running a firm. And we're talking about all these different things and it can feel kind of just overarching, but the reality is brass tacks. We work doggedly. We have for years, and this is not me trying to make us seem like something we're not. Uh, there is a tremendous sacrifice of time, of energy, of capacity, you know, bandwidth to, to, to meet and be with other people. I mean, I've lost count. I mean, how many days have I worked, you know, 16, 18 hours? And then what? You're supposed to stop that and turn off your stress? You know, oh, I'm not working on this brief anymore. So it, it's no longer taking a toll on me. I mean, you know, I'm not... I'm only the husband to my wife. I'm not her, but I know that I'm sure through the years she's seen me drained and, you know, not totally available because my, my brain is thinking about something else, or maybe I'm so exhausted or, you know, before zoom became a thing. I mean, we were on the road constantly. There was a road trip. John and I took, you know, we were on the road in Florida. He dropped me off in one County a couple hours away. He kept driving up North a couple hours for different hearings, different reasons. Then he picked me back up. We had to drive back. And, you know, those road trips are fun. I hold those memories fondly, dearly. I, I truly do. But, you know, we can't forget. We both have small children. We both have, you know, wives who care about us and want to spend time with us. And we want to spend time with them. And let's talk about the sacrifice that they have to make, you know, for us to be able to put in those kinds of hours. And shout out to both of them, Aaron and Jill, for, for holding it down for us for all these years and continuing to do so without complaint. You know, it, it can't happen without them. But for anyone out there wondering, hey, I'm just going to start my firm and, you know, I'll be able to vacation when I want and I'm going to work from the beach and all this stuff. Look, maybe there's a better mousetrap. Maybe there's a better way to do it. And you and I haven't discovered it yet. But as far as I'm concerned, I can only address things as they've happened for me. And here we are years in. And in many ways, our growth, our, our happiness, our quality of performance in life, it's all been hockey sticking the right way like a parabola. And I'm just so grateful for that. But one thing that's kind of been a constant is our commitment in terms of time and energy for what we have to put in to get the job done right, you know? Yeah, yeah and don't let Lauren J uh, Jordan lie to you guys. He's a, he'll be at the lake house in Georgia, like, oh, I'm going out of town this weekend. We're getting a lake house, you know? So that, that happens more frequently. Yeah, you, can't, you can't take a vacation once a year. John will, John will remember. That's, that's why. Oh, gosh, yeah, once a year. But, no, I mean, the reality is it's true. But the problem is, is even when you're gone – you know, you're still present, right? And, and so what, we, what we've tried to develop is like, look, we're bringing in additional trial lawyers. Um, you know, we're investing in people, right? That's the kind of thing that we, you know, the first thing we did, was, and we didn't really talk about this, we started investing in systems, right? We've gone through 
I don't know how many different uh, case management programs, whether it was CloudLex, Practice Plant, Panther. Um, we had FileVine. We left FileVine. And then now we're back with FileVine. And, you know, so we're, we're trying to, we're always trying to find out, you know, like I think Jordan says, it's, it's the best of an imperfect um, solution or something like that that you talk about. So we've, we've, we get the systems in place. Now we're trying to develop the people because I want to have the ability even, I mean, it's been a few years now that we can step away, right? If I want to go out of right. town for a weekend, but the problem is, is like who I am as a person, it's diff- difficult for me to do that. It's difficult for me to turn it off, it, to say, that's it, I'm done, you know, I'm going to be on vacation because if something comes up or, I, you know, I, I always want to have my finger on the pulse. And so that that's something that I've tried to work Let's on. be real, John. When's the last time you and I, respectively, took a weekend, extended weekend vacation and didn't bring our computer, not because we wanted to, but because we felt that there was a, there, either there legitimately was a deadline that had to be met. Uh, I mean, I, I know, because I've been there with you, where I've seen you or I'm talking to you on a phone call and you're supposed to be back home in Virginia or where you're at with your family and you're, you're calling me, we're booting up on the laptop and vice versa. Right. I'm trying to take my kids to the mountains. And meanwhile, I'm sitting at a kitchen table in this place I'm renting, trying to get a brief done. I mean, you know, it's you try and step away and I think we're getting better at that. But it's it's not something that can happen from day one. And yeah, you're right about systems. We use FileVine and shout out to them. I think they're the best of, of what's available and they're always working to improve, which I like. But systems are critically important. And you know what? I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We're not as good and committed to the systems as we can be. And I think, you know, we collectively as a firm, we aspire to be better and we're working on that. But it's not something you just click a button and you have it. You know, I think... A lot of people have this false impression. Oh, if I start a firm, I'm going to use this case management system because I like it or whatever the reason is. It's got these nice bells and whistles and it's just going to work seamlessly. When the reality is, no matter how customizable these things are, every firm is different. How you like things are different, You know, even down to templates uh, in a Word document, formatting and all that. What are you going to save file names? And then are is everyone in your firm going to do it exactly the same? You know, No matter what degree of commitment you have, it could be there. You still got to execute. And so that's something I think we still, even to this day, we, we stand to improve and we're doing better every day. But that's something I know is a goal for me running this firm. Yeah, but but there's also, there's a benefit. Like, I like the grind. And I like the grind, not in the sense that, like, I thoroughly enjoy working sometimes until all night, but I like crushing the other side, right? And not like yeah. from a, like a negative personal standpoint, but I mean, motions for like we're plaintiff lawyers right no more of this like defensive posture like we are taking the offensive we are moving for summary judgment i'm daubert challenging every one of your experts you know and so and these things are happening successfully you know they changed the law in florida to make the summary judgment standard more in the in line with federal which is can be great for the plaintiffs right not maybe not so much in the premises liability standpoint but when you have an issue where your doctor's like oh yeah well he's hurt but not permanently hurt great that's summary judgment on causation you know like and that's the defense doctor so like use what i thorough like fighting and saying look i'm going to put in the time and energy i'm going to work on this case it's the biggest case it's the most important case to me and i am going to be successful because no one will outwork me and i and i hear other lawyers say that and when it comes to like myself and really for Jordan and Jordan more so than me, like he literally, and I, and I think he's a freak because he can, he can knock out a, like a Daubert challenge motion, in like four hours, like, like, Oh, I got this brief. Like he pulled over. I'm in trial. We're in a criminal trial. 
I don't do criminal trial. I came in to do the accident reconstruction um, uh, cross-examination. Judge made me stay. She was like, well, you can't do just one witness. You had to stay. So I stayed during the trial. Judge made a, in a Richardson hearing, which is a basically a discovery violation from the state and whether they failed to disclose something. We had a Richardson hearing, and she made a comment in denying the challenge that says, I know how important this decision is for the victim's family. And you're like, what? This is the state of Florida versus a client. What is the victim's family doing at, at any point in time in your mind? So we filed a, a motion to DQ the judge in, in the middle of the trial. We filed in the morning, and I'll never forget this. She denies the challenge of saying it's not facially sufficient, which it was. So Jordan is driving. I don't know where he was driving from. Somewhere on the road. Pulls over. Prepares a writ to the 4th DCA. He was like, hey, send me. This. I'm scanning documents on my phone. Send it to him. He puts an appendix and files it like two hours later on the side of the road. Yeah, a lot more stressful than it sounds, but that was a team effort. I mean, I was coming back from Bradenton, I remember, because I was up there meeting with a client. And I was on my way back and you told me and I pulled over to a Starbucks and you and I worked that thing out. Yeah, I did the drafting, but you gave me all the play by play. You got a daily copy, you know, excerpt of the transcript and but, we but got that the, done. But that's the kind of thing. It's like, look, th that kind of dedication and grind and saying, you know what? And then, you know, we had to hand deliver the copy to the judge. I had to print it out, run in the office like, oh, by the way, here's your uh, your served copy of the writ. Um, you know, so it's. Yeah. And you know what this reminds me actually of of the underlying concept through it all, which is when you're running a business, any business, but especially a law firm, especially one based on contingency fees. You know, we've talked a few times about criminal cases, but 99% of our cases are plaintiff personal injury and contingent. It is so easy mentally to envision a world where you just give in sometimes, whether it's a small discovery issue or a particular pretrial, you know, evidentiary issue, or just even with settlement, wow, maybe this is just enough. I mean, the client seems happy with it. And shouldn't that be all that matters? It's it's easy mentally to find yourself traveling in a bad neighborhood. But John and I really pride ourselves. And, you know, I'm so grateful to say everyone that we've hired and that works with us, they have a similar mindset. We're not going to go for the easy, low-hanging fruit. We're going to fight tooth and nail, leave no stone unturned, and we're going to get the maximum amount. You know, we tell clients all the time, it's not about the fastest result. It's about the best result. And that takes a, a degree of patience for sure by them and a degree of stick to from us. And, and we fight doggedly for our clients. And I, and I love that. But there's a lot of different ways to skin this cat being a plaintiff personal injury lawyer. And um, I'd be joking myself and everyone else if I said that from time to time, you look at a really challenging case where it's been like kind of toxically litigated by both sides endless hours spent. And you're just like, man, it would be so much easier if this case just settled and went away. But anytime I find myself where that thought enters, I just push it out. And I say, that's, that's not who I am. That's not who we are. But that, that, that does touch on the point of running a business, which is there are different incentives and ideas and goals. You got to keep the client number one. At the end of the day, that's what we're doing. We're, we're helping people. And I think by helping people, it allows me to to stay committed to the bigger picture a lot easier. I think if I was representing a company or the government, I mean, ugh, I, I couldn't even envision myself doing it. I don't know how I'd get motivated to keep fighting, you know? Yeah. No, um, I mean, it, it's, it's true because part of, you know, so as a contingency fee lawyer, the one thing you don't ever want to have to happen is that you as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, ha having the client's interest, you have to have that concern. Well, 
from a business standpoint, what happens monetarily if this case doesn't go well? Or what happens if I don't, they're settling, like I could, you know, we could use this and you, you never want to be in the position. And what we, we pride ourselves on never doing is saying, you know, like I need to resolve this case for me, right? If, it, if it's in the client's best interest, I can t- tell them and we will tell them no. You know, that you got to have the power of no. No, no, no. I mean, the, you know, that's, that, that can have volumes. I mean, on cases where even a small one where they were recently, we had a proposal for settlement and, you know, they were like, they emailed like, oh, are we negotiating? And I'm like, you have 30 days to accept the PFS. And I kind of ignored it because it's what's the point? And they accepted Right. And so being able to say that, look, sometimes, you know, moving forward is the right thing and sometimes not, but it should never be on the on the side of that. The business needs it. Right. Right. And that and that's and look, we're trial lawyers. Right. So I know I know that phrase gets thrown around a lot and I'm proud to wear it, but it because it, it, it neatly it fits for us. But if you're a trial lawyer, really a trial lawyer or you're one or you're a lawyer who wants to be one. You're not really a trial lawyer, in my opinion, unless you're trying enough cases where you're going to take an L sometimes. Fall flat on your face. Even if it was your best performance, the jersey just comes back and zips you. That happens. It's going to happen. But, you know, we live in a world where for some reason I can never understand what is it, 98, 99% of cases in the state of Florida are settling. I mean, what that tells me, it's not an indictment on anybody in particular. It's an indictment on the system, which is that somewhere along the lines, uh, people either are too fearful or just not willing to go the distance. But, you know, when you own a business, it's so much easier. I said this to settle the case and move on. That's money in the bank. Keep it moving. No risk. Right. I don't have a risk of, quote unquote, losing. I don't care about that risk. I mean, I, I consider it, but I don't let it control us. And I know you don't either. And hey, sometimes you're going to go and you're going to try and you're going to do better than you thought. Sometimes you go and you win on paper, but it's much less than you thought. So it's like a loss. Sometimes you go and you lose. Guess what? We continue the fight which is an interesting business decision. We've had cases where we've gone, there's been error during the trial, we are confident in it, we get a zero, we initiate appeal, and then we fight another two, three years, and we've won new trials. So, uh, you know, even though we're running a business, I think this gets back to what you've been saying, which is you can't let the business decisions overwhelm what is truly in the client's best interest or what you know is just. Um, And I think we could, you know, we could switch gears because you and I could spend six lifetimes talking about what we've been through but let's switch gears to a segment we're going to try and bring up uh, in a recurring fashion, which is question of the week. Episode one went well. We had some some good listeners, some active listeners, and we got some some questions. And you know, one of the ones that you and I kept talking about, and I think we're going to talk about today, is look, you're based in Hollywood, Florida. That's where our HQ is. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, but we handle cases all over the state of Florida. And so maybe we can talk a little bit, and, and I'd like you to begin on what it's like trying a case outside of let's say the tri-county area in South Florida, you know, Palm Beach, Broward, and Dade, what it's like trying to case in Orange County or Orlando or further north. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, every jurisdiction is unique, right? We, 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 we pra- practice predominantly in, you know, Miami-Dade, Broward County. Uh, we have cases in Palm Beach as well. And we do have, you know, we, and we've tried cases in Orange County. And, and like I said, I think Orange County is more similar um, in the sense of the amount of cases that they're handling, right? So, what you got? Well, what about Lake County? I mean, look, right after the pandemic finally finally broke, so to speak, and trials were allowed, we went to Lake County in a case against Home Depot for an incredible woman of a client. 
who was super patient uh, during a very toxically litigated case. But maybe you can share what that was like. Try, we had never, neither of us had tried a case up there. Right. Yeah. We hadn't, hadn't tried a case in Lake County. Um, we had, we went, we cycled through, I think we had like three different judges, right? And every judge has their own. Four, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe four. So, like, look, one of the tips that I can say is like, look, see if the jurisdiction has very particular local rules, right? That, that, that's the only thing I can recommend. I, I know, in, for instance, what, and we'll come back to Lake County, but Lee County has some very particular provision. In fact, we, they were asked, like, have you read Local Rule 16.3 at a hearing? And we didn't even know yeah. that something exists. And it was about, I don't know if it was on conferral or something. You know, Jordan, you were there. But it was like something so innocuous that it didn't really matter. But the judge wanted it just basically because we're, we're not from there. Right. Like we're out of towners and, and, you know, you haven't read this and or sometimes they have standing orders that you have to send with the subpoena and things that are, you know, so make sure you look to see, look, is there something specific in this jurisdiction? And then look to see, is there something specific with this judge? Every judge has their own way to do it. The judge that tried our case in Lake County, you know, I thought he was a good trial judge. Right. Me too. I thought he was incredible in terms of his effort and energy and trying to get things right. I, right. I do. Although he didn't think that anybody was a cause challenge. Anybody. I mean, the person like, I think every plaintiff uh, fakes an injury and they're all uh, liars and frauds. I was like, uh, can you be fair? No. That was a super tough panel in jury selection. Yeah. And super he, and he um, you know, and he basically says, no, nope, that's not a cause challenge. But what, but the reason why he's smart, and this is why he's smart, is because. I don't think we, we asked for an additional peremptory. He gave it. And I think we probably could have kept asking for them because it never got to a point where he denied a request for a peremptory. So when I renewed my challenges to the, to the, or the previously raised motions, he was like, is there an actual an appellate issue? Because I, I hadn't asked for peremptories and, and said, right. well, I would have used them for these particular people. And we're going to talk about preserving appellate issues in, in another episode. But that was an example of a judge who knows how to try a case and, and knows that. But then, he, you know, there were some things that we, you know, and obviously the case is pending on appeal. Um, we got a result, but it was one of those correct on good on paper. It's a win, but it's not a right. win for what we what we wanted. So. You know, yeah, I think if look, if you're a, even just a litigator, if it, maybe you haven't even tried your first case yet. You're an associate somewhere. You've been working up files, touching on different counties. Uh, I know now with Zoom, it's so much easier to be in two places at once or to, to seemingly time travel uh, to different parts of your perspective, respective jurisdictions. But being hometown is a real thing, in my in my honest opinion. I think it's born of a lot of different things, many of which aren't even you know full of malice or anything. It's just natural human behavior. Pre-pandemic, you know, if you practice in a particular locale, odds are you were in and out of that courthouse regularly during motions calendar. Uh, and you probably have face-to-face -face with a lot of the same judges. They get to know who you are. You get to know who they are. Your friend on the other side, you know, they get to know you. You've had cases against them, et cetera. That, that builds a degree of comfortability. And so I think when somebody who's foreign to that locale steps in, Sometimes you stand out like a sore thumb. I've had cases. I had a case, more than one, in a in a county in a in a particular judicial circuit in Florida where I walked in and the bailiff was telling me, "You're not from around here, are you?" Right out of the gate, and and trying to give me the the rundown about how things were going to go and how things go there. You know, you got to deal with that. You got to explain to the client. And by the same token, you know, we were talking about. Or I, I brought up in Lake County the the panel. You got to just anticipate. Look. It's not just about the judge or what the opposing lawyer might might do or say. 
jurors, you know, they're pulled from those particular jurisdictions and, and there's no broad brush that you could paint and say all people that live in this part of the state or jurisdiction are, are this way, but people are different. Their life experiences are different. You know, if you're up way north in a particular part of Florida, it might be more agricultural than if you're down in, let's say, Key West, right? Or even in parts of Miami-Dade County. And so you've got to be aware of these things. You, you have to be. You can't just treat it as, well, the law is the law and it should be applied equally and the same everywhere because that is true. And everyone is going to do their best to apply that and make that a reality. But there are different, just practically speaking, differences in, in humanity that factor when you're in different jurisdictions. So for me, I'm excited when I get to go to a new jurisdiction. It's different. It adds a whole different element for me. You know, I'm a gamer. It reminds me of in my youth when I used to get to play sports and you go up against a certain different school or an institution and you've never been there before, but you've heard things. And so there's there's a degree of excitement for me, I'll confess. But I'd be uh, lying if I didn't say there are times where I feel like, man, I'm getting hometown over here. But if you can overcome that and get justice for your client, that's that's a double win, you know? Yeah, and I think that the, the ways to do that is kind of, you know, keep doing what you're doing, right? Keep presenting the good arguments. Keep presenting the good law. Keep keep being, you know, kind of like we, we talked about being the voice of, um, I can't even think right now, like not the voice of reason, it's the of credibility, right? And so if you have credibility with the court, you present good arguments, you present good good facts, and you continue to do that, eventually I feel like you can break down even the, the, the largest hometown barrier because at the end of the day, these are judges, they are people, they, but they also want to be right. Right. You know, and so I think that, you know, that's a way you can do it. And the last one, really, getting the JAs, what I've found in like smaller jurisdictions are fantastic because they're the ones really ru- not running the show, but there's a lot of personal interaction, you know, especially if you're in a smaller jurisdiction where like you need to set a hearing. They don't have advanced, you know, jack system or, you know, uh, court map to go in and find. No, you call the J and say, hey, look, can I get some hearing dates? So, yeah, this is, by the way, that's judicial assistance for sure. And I know in a future episode, we're going to just talk very specifically about having good support staff like paralegals and legal assistants, which is why we didn't touch on it today. But I totally agree with you. Get get familiar with the particular judicial assistant in, in that particular judge, wherever you're going to be, so that you can anticipate some things. And, and very often they're there. They are there to help, but very often they go above and beyond what yeah. they might otherwise have to do. So. I know we're coming up here on, it's been almost an hour and, and I, you know, I want to save some material for a, another episode because I know, I think next week we're going to have Keila Smith on who's a rock star senior trial associate in our firm. Who I had the pleasure uh, of meeting and working with back at the Miami Dade public defender's office. So I'm looking forward to that episode. So stay tuned for that. But uh, for everyone out there, th- again, thank you for listening. If you like us, you know, subscribe, give us a rating, drop a comment and, and spread the news. We appreciate that. Yeah, th- thanks everyone joining in. Um, you know, we're really, really enjoying this opportunity to speak, you know, give you guys some insight, let us know what we know. And then, um, you know, so if you have any questions, things you want to talk about, just, just let us know. All right, take care, everybody. See you guys. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at OnJusticePod on Instagram and Twitter or check out Discord for PlaintiffAttorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time. 
This is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.